the world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve 8 from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve 8 is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and here's part two of my interview with Ken Tretzman. A lot of these films that you've worked on are geared towards children, but are enjoyable for all ages. And I was wondering yeah. how you approach a cut to make sure that you you can uh, draw in that mature audience. I never think of it as a children's film. I just think of it as a movie, as an adult film. And it's almost like I forget it's animated. It's just a movie and, you know, we aim high and, and give it mature storylines. <laughs> You know, you just make sure that it's, you know, obviously there's an awareness that families will be out there watching this and, you know, the, the, the material has to be appropriate. But beyond that, the storylines are mature themes. So I think that's probably why it appeals to adults because it, in a way it's made for them. I mean, when you look at Toy Story 3, abandonment issues and growing up and letting go, you know, this is something that anyone can identify with. It also makes me think of the older style cartoons where they didn't talk down to kids, but yeah. sort of told them relatable stories. And it's something that I'm, kids yeah. can watch or adults can watch. I love that one. I mean, you know, when I grew up, I was watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. Mm -hmm. Sort of had, you know, double meanings. And then, you know, Bugs Bunny. And, you know, I don't think that the, even the Disney feature films talk down to its audience. And today there's a lot of people dismiss animation as if it's, just for kids and a lot of it is you know they're not even making an effort to make it a challenging story and i think that's what sets pixar apart is they make the effort and treat it treat the uh the medium with respect i heard that when pixar worked on the incredibles they started a process in in the editing room called the sweatbox sessions and mm -hmm. i was wondering if you could describe to me what those are as well as yeah. i was wondering if you guys used them on toy story 3 and in cars i think we pretty much used it i i don't know necessarily if anything changed with the incredibles but i don't even remember if we ever called it sweatbox okay. before then but definitely you know sweatbox has been around a long time since the yeah. disney days and the, the way i understand it is that they would you know, all the department leads would gather around the moviola and in a small room and look at the film together. And I think that's why they call it Sweatbox. It just got a little stuffy in there. But, we, we, you know, we do that at some point on a sequence when, when the sequence is almost, you know, there's, there's a lot of animation coming in and we're getting ready to render. They bring everyone in the same room. We all look at, look at it together. It's just an efficient way to, to move forward and finish the sequence. I don't think there's much more of a mystery to it than that. Now, I'd like to jump to Toy Story 3. The film is extremely well-crafted, but it also had two really well-crafted films prior to it. Uh, how did you approach cutting this film to make sure that you lived up to the originals while still maintaining such unique elements? Well, the main, the main thing was to, you know, to make sure that the uh, characters were consistent. And Lee Unkrich, the director, had worked on the other two films. Mm -hmm. I think he was the editor of both of them. And, you know, I remember in the early days of cutting Toy Story 3, I'd cut dialogue and he'd go, you know, that's sort of, uh, what did he, how did he put it? It's, he said, that dialogue is off model. 
like Mr. Potato Head, yeah, it's Don Rickles, but it's not quite capturing whatever that is. You know, and it, it took me a while to develop the same ear for the characters. So, you know, at one point we went back and screened the other movies again, and it, it kind of was a nice readjustment. So that was the main thing. In terms of editing, I, you know, I don't think there's anything to study or anything to influence. The, you know, the editing always follows whatever story you're, you're dealing with. But definitely the main thing was the consistency of the, the characters. Well, with, with that consistency, because there's two stories that give so much back story to these characters, did you find that there was mm-hmm. less of a need to build up at the beginning and fill in people? Yeah, there's a balance. You definitely owe it to an audience because, you know, part of the audience hasn't seen the other films. But there's a little bit of explanation, you know, about who these characters are, but also continuing the story. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, balance and there's, a, there's just enough exposition to get everyone up to speed. So it was definitely that responsibility. Well, I, I sort of saw that with the introduction with that sort of dream sequence at the beginning that goes into the home movies. Right. And I wonder what that's like for people who haven't seen the other two films. I know someone who saw Toy Story 3 and then mm-hmm. hadn't seen the other two. And he totally followed it, and he said he was crying at the end. And I was kind of baffled. I thought you really needed to see the other two to really really feel that deeply for these characters. But uh, not true. But you're right, that flashback in the beginning totally links into the other two films. And, you know, it was important specifically to have that video montage to show that there's this kid, Andy, who's been playing with toys as a child, You know, we needed to establish that. We couldn't just assume that people knew that if they, you know, if they they didn't have that prior knowledge. Uh, Lee, the director, also worked on the first two. How did you approach working with a director who's also helping edit, as well as having been such a major player in the first two? Were there, uh, like, how did you approach working together as editor-director? And also, when you came to impasse or uh, a disagreement, how did you solve the disagreement? Well, uh, you know, the, the great thing about Lee is he sort of, since he's a director and he's in every department, he brought an editor's eye and always never forgot about the, you know, the, the editing department when he was in another department. So when he was in the story department, he would work on the cut, cutting up there before the storyboards were even delivered. Or when he's in animation dailies, he'll always think about how the two shots connect and make sure the continuity works well. So that was great that, to have him in that way. And then working with him, he totally, you know, there was a total mutual respect for each other's work, and he, he knew how much slack to give me, and he just knew how to, um, what to look for in the cutting room, which was great in, in early cuts. And he has never really gotten let go of his editing roots. Before we would lock a scene, he would always sit down on an avid and go through the scene and it was the best way for him to understand what the scene needed that there were some last minute fixes he needed done uh yeah it was a pretty efficient way to work now i noticed on the toy story 3 dvd there was a featurette uh where they sort of explain what editors do and and at one point there's a, a small interview with you and you described a need for honesty within your edits and i was wondering if you could elaborate on that oh yeah I think that's what I had learned, is you can't kid yourself when a cut isn't working. You know, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. I mean, that's what makes you a better editor. Or if a line doesn't ring true, I think you have to have this complete honesty about stuff if you're, you know, and be willing to make changes if you're going to make it better. I think that's 
I mean, that's pretty much what I meant from, by that. Now, I'd, I'd like to jump to Cars. The opening 10 minutes are a fantastic setup for the story, as well as the characters. And I was wondering if you could tell me how you approached cutting this particular sequence. And that's really the introduction to the whole world of Cars. And it's the race, and we wanted to establish McQueen's fast-paced world, because this is what the story is about. Essentially, it's a fast race car who needs to learn how to slow down. And so there's a huge difference in the way we cut the, uh, you know, the racing world scenes and then going to Radiator Springs where we completely put the brakes on things. Yeah, everything sort of slows down. So, you know, we looked at a lot of NASCAR races and met with the Fox people and you know we're trying to simulate what a a nascar race looks like and you know we just sort of cut a heightened version of that really really fast paced picking great angles and at the same time there were a few things we needed to establish these these characters were important to establish because you know you you know after a couple minutes of just cars going around in circles you you know you you know there has to be more to it than that, so you have to engage the audience in the story. I was going to bring up that you referenced, I guess, tip your hat to NASCAR with the style, the opening sort of mm-hmm. images and set setups. Yeah, yeah. Did you go to NASCAR footage for ins- inspiration? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we were flown to a, a few NASCAR races, and, uh, you know, we got to walk the track. I mean, for me, it was interesting to see the size of the track, and, you know, I was right there in the pit with the pit crews, watching them do their work and see just to, you know, if you're going to tell a story, you better understand that world. And that was the best way to understand it. But, you know, the most exciting thing for me on those trips was visiting with the director of the Fox uh, sports broadcast and and being in the booth and seeing, you know, a hundred monitors with all the different angles. And he's like editing live. It's just unbelievable. But that's kind of the feel that we were we were going after within the first minute there's sort of this voiceover with cuts to black and then cuts to the race how did that come about in the editing room or what was that inspired from you know i don't know where it originally but the amazing thing was that i remember that but that was in the first cut of storyboards It, it happened in story someone's idea was all right we're just you know this is the way we're going to introduce the world start on black hear his voice you know he he had you know his McQueen with his mantra, getting all psyched, and then the abstract boom, 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 boom of the cars. I think it was just a clever way to introduce it. And I don't know, maybe you do. I mean, I'm sure I've seen that before in films, but I don't know if it was anything specific. Yeah, I couldn't think of, of a film that, that does that. And that's, it was such a, a really impactful way of starting. It's a good way of putting it. It's impactful. It really, it just... You know, to have these flashes of cars and the sound really, really grabs your attention. Yeah. Now, on on a project like this, you'd mentioned earlier, you might go for four or five years on, on an edit. So how do you and your, your assistants uh, avoid overworking the film and stay stay objective enough to make tough calls in the editing suite? Yeah, that's a good... I mean, that is the most challenging part of these things is keeping your perspective, you know stepping back and having some perspective on it. I, I mean, I strangely enough, it never feels like enough time. <laughs> <laughs> there's, so much, there's so much work to be kept on, up with. There's so many changes, you know, dialogue's changing. I never feel like there's a point where the film settles and I could think about it and give it any second thought. I mean, a lot of what you see is like, you know, my first instincts 
and um, you know, with a few, you know, a couple opportunities for reviews with the director. But I always feel like we got to get it right the first time. It, 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 you know, it, it's so weird to say after four years of that. But I don't think we run the. You know, you do. You could run the risk of kind of getting so close to the jokes that no one's laughing anymore. And so you always have to remind yourself, yes, the first time we saw it two years ago, it was hilarious. And we should trust that. And we we shouldn't change it. And there's, you know, I think I think Pixar has gotten smart about that. They're not, they're, they're willing to keep things that played in the beginning. But you're right, that is the biggest, that is the biggest challenge. Now, I have one last question that I like to ask all the editors that I interview. Okay. And that is, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I have one from childhood that I haven't seen in a long time. Dr. Fives Rises Again. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you have to <laughs> look that one up. It was an Vincent Price movie. Wow. And I probably saw it when I was 12, and I remember being so excited about it because there was all these different clever ways of killing people. Sounds, <laughs> sounds really interesting. And it's probably a horrible movie, but I was so <laughs> into it. Well, <laughs> well, thank you very much for letting me interview that was my interview with Ken, and with me right now is Lauren Woodcock. Hi there. So, Lauren, how yes. are things? Good. Do we have uh, a forward film review winner yet this time? I don't think we do. No, we don't. Nope. So, what does that mean? It means I'm going to give you another clue. So the first clue was Rail Splitter, a stakeholder. And the second one is From Dusk Till Dawn. Dusk, D-E-S-K, Till Dawn. So give that a, a gander. So his back with your answers. A couple ways to do that. Info at AOTG.com or at Art Guillotine on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Art Guillotine. Yeah, that's exactly it. Now, we've been working on getting a party together or a post-chat LA8 together. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what post-chat is, every Wednesday we have a uh, online discussion on Twitter. You can go to twitter.com slash postchat. And basically every week we have a different discussion from post-production. And what time is it usually on? 9 p.m. Eastern. Until 10. Yeah. On what day? Wednesdays. Wednesdays. And what we like to do is we like to have live events sometimes. Yeah. So we're hoping that uh, we'll have a live event. Mm -hmm. We're just confirming the location. Perfect. Eric Brodeur is involved and a few other locals, including Mobiola, maybe. Oh, very good. So we'll keep you posted on that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm hoping to know by the end of Monday. Okay. So other than that, I've been swamped uh, with work with Richard. Richard Richard's getting married soon, so we're trying to wrap up a bunch of coding. Yeah. Yeah, so I, that's what my key focus has been right now. We do have a few interviews coming up with the editor of Bully. Nice. And the editor of Billy Madison. Yeah. And maybe an interview that'll be just posted on the site with the Avengers editor. Yes. Among among many others. So with that said, I think we should let you guys go because we have to continue cutting we have to continue cutting these things. I'd like to thank Ken for allowing me to interview him. Yep. I'd like to thank Lauren. Hi. My producer. Thanks. As well as the American Cinematators and Jenny McCormick for helping organize that. Yep. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. Bye.